you pray with me for a second? Father, thank you for that amazing reminder. We so need that reminder today. Holy Spirit, will you take this, what seems like very familiar truth and open the eyes of our hearts and our ears and our eyes. I particularly want to pray this morning, God, for anybody here who feels far away from you, who's walked away from you, or who may sit here and go, I, I don't know this Jesus that y'all singing about. We have been praying for them, God, and pray that you, because this is the only work that you can do, you would open their eyes, you would open their ears, you would open their hearts, Jesus, and that you would reveal yourself to them, just as you did to those early disciples who saw a risen Jesus. So, may we come with sense of expectancy, God. We know you have something for us. We just simply pray, God, that whatever it is that you would have for us, God, that we would receive it, that we would be open, humble. Your King, your Lord, thank you for these reminders here this morning. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I think they were all there that morning. Don't you? Jesus said, uh, this repeatedly throughout his three years of ministry. Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and say the following with me. And, uh, okay, this is participation sport, ready? And on the third day, be raised to life. He's saying this constantly in three years of ministry. So that morning, I think people were there, you know. I think Lazarus was there. Remember Lazarus? He had been there and done that, right? If you were here last week. I think some of the people that were fed, you know, free lunch at that little deal, 5,000, I think they were there. I think, I think that dude that was raised down from the roof, remember his friends helped him? I think he was there. I think, uh, um, let's see, who else? Um, I think uh, people that were healed, uh, who were born blind were there. People who were, were sick and were here. I think definitely all the disciples were there waiting. Because they heard him say, I'm going to die in three days, be raised. So I think they brought those, you know, those chairs that you bring to sporting events and beach or whatever. And they all got the best seat. And they sat there and said, okay, we can't wait. Here we go. And God God, creator God, spoke into depths of sin and death and he raised his son bodily, physically from the dead and the stone. And when Jesus walked out of that tomb, he walked out to an enormous audience of, somebody said it, say it louder. There's nobody there. There's nobody there. Why? Because it was quite unbelievable for them too. 
And yet, they believed. And over the course of the next 500 days, the Bible says, these skeptics, these doubters, these unbelievers came to believe not only that Jesus arose from the dead, but that he was the son of God. And check this out. Many of them went to their death claiming that he had risen. Uh, You might be familiar with this story. You might not. We find the story in Luke chapter 24, and I want to take you to that. In Luke chapter 24, the gospel writer Luke uh, writes this account in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. Why, Why are they going to the tomb with the spices? To deal with the smell of a body decaying, decomposition. In other words, these are people who've walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus for three years, and they can't believe that he would be risen from the dead. Ah. Every Easter I say this. Give me like a couple minutes on this. One of the greatest misunderstandings of Easter story, because if you're not a believer, you know, one of the great misunderstandings of Easter story is people go, they believed in stuff like that back then. In the first century, they're ancient people, oh, uneducated. They're superstitious. They believed in miracles. Us, we're educated. We're smarter. We're more sophisticated. We believe in science. Those, one of the biggest misunderstanding is that they were stupid. <laughs> and we're just, not. listen, if you've heard this story before, okay, they weren't stupid. They just like you and me believe that if people died, they, they what? They, they stay dead. Uh, if you've heard, heard this story, uh, pretend like you didn't, okay? Did you ever hear about the story of the woman? I'll tell you more. The story of the woman who looked out one day in the backyard and she saw a German, her German shepherd, her beloved German shepherd with the neighbor's rabbit in its mouth. And she is horrified because they didn't get along. And this is the end of it, right? So she runs out with the broom, whacks her dog, whacks her dog. dog drops the dead rabbit, the very dead rabbit on the ground. She picks it up, runs inside the house, gives it a nice bath, cleans its fur, blow dries it, <laughs> takes this rabbit, goes to the neighbor's backyard, puts it back in its cage, and casually wanders back into her house. An hour later, she hears screaming from the backyard of her neighbor. She runs out and says, what's wrong? Her neighbor says, my rabbit, my rabbit. It died two weeks ago, and I buried it right here. But it's alive. It's alive. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Listen, people in the ancient world believe that dead rabbits stayed Dead. And dead rabbis stay dead. There are three worldviews that dominated the ancient world. There was a group of people who said, your life, when you die, you go out like a candle. Nothing to it. There was a Roman epithet that was so popular that it was engraved on just about every gravestone. It simply said this, I was not, I am, I am not, and I don't care. Your life, you die. Then, of course, the Greeks believed that your body, matter, was evil, dirty, and your spirit is pure. Your spirit. So the whole point of life was for your spirit to shed the body and find. So the thought for Greeks 
of a body being physically resurrected was not just unbelievable, it was undesirable. The Jews. The Jews. Maybe the least likely to believe. Why? See, the, the, the whole the aspect of eternal resurrection wasn't something that came along after Jesus resurrected. The Jews, first century Jews, believed in something other the resurrection. But here's what they believed. They believed that the world was just absolutely broken and completely messed up. Suffering, injustice, evil, death everywhere. And there's nothing we can do about it. And so one day they believed in the resurrection that God was going to come and he was going to judge all evil, judge all sin, end all suffering, and the righteous will be resurrected all at the same time. So their belief of the resurrection was that it was final at the end of the world, happened on a mass scale to everybody. So for a Jew to believe in the middle of history, one person to be resurrected, somebody asked the rabbi, why do you not believe that Jesus is Messiah? He said, death continues. Injustice continues. Suffering continues. Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah. Why do I say this? Because if you're sitting there this morning, glad you're here, by the way, and you go, oh, I just believe. Listen, whatever it would take you right now today to go, this is what it would take for me to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. It took them that and then some. And yet they believed. Why? they let the evidence challenge and ultimately change their worldview. They didn't just go, well, I feel this vibe. I'm going to believe. I just some sort of, you know, feel. They looked at the evidence. You know how first century, do you know how Christianity spread? It's C.C. who saw the risen Lord said to his neighbor, I saw him. You know I'm the last person to believe something like this. I saw him. I'm telling you, he's alive. They told their neighbors. They told their friends. And then those neighbors told their friends, and, those and that's how Christianity spread. They let the evidence challenge and ultimately change their worldview. Listen. <laughs> Peter, why are you talking about rational things on a day when we just want to smell tulips and go have brunch? Why be so rational? I'll tell you exactly why. People have come to me over the years and said, I'm interested in Christianity. I say, Why? My marriage has fallen apart. I lost a job. My children have run away. Somebody I dated for four years broke up with me. Or someone I love has cancer. In other words, they go, I have this tremendous need, tremendous need. Will Jesus meet my need? Will Jesus help me? You know what I tell them? I go, it's the wrong question to ask. The question is, is it true? Did it happen? Did it really happen? 1 Corinthians 15. Apostle Paul writing like 20 years, this letter to Christians says this. He literally says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching, this is possible, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, none of this matters. If, friend, if you're sitting here this morning going, hey, maybe interesting Christianity, I need some help. Wrong question to ask. You gotta ask, is it true did it happen? And today, Christians all over the world declare it is what? True. It happened. That's why, listen, he can meet your needs. That's why he's fulfilling. That's why he could help you with the deepest needs of your heart. That's why he could forgive you of your sins. That's why the Spirit could come and change us. That's why we could have hope for this world that someday God's justice will come and make everything right. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, listen, if you're sitting there going, Peter, I'm just not the believing type, you know? Some people are the believing type, which I have no idea what that means, by the way. 
I'm just not the believing type. Here's what I would say to you. I'm going to push you back a little bit, okay? I would say this. I would say all of us actually are fierce believers in what? That we're in control. We fiercely believe that we're in control. By the way, there's huge evidence that says otherwise. We fiercely believe that we're competent to run our own lives. We fiercely believe I am in control. We fiercely believe I am competent. We fiercely believe my life is mapped out three, four, five years, and I'm going to go out as planned. We fiercely believe that truth despite enormous evidence. Maybe it's not a belief thing. Maybe it's not a lack of information thing. Maybe for some of us, the challenge to Christianity is it's a surrender issue. See, if you're not a Christian, ask any Christian in this room. And you know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you that at some point, begin your Christianity, at some point, all of us have to come to this point. I am not in control. I am not competent to run my own life. And my life, as much as I like it to go as I planned, rarely works out the way I planned. And even though this is scary, even though this is frightening, I am going to surrender control to someone way more competent, way more wise, and way more loving than I will ever be. And his name is Jesus. See, friend, if you're here this morning, and if for you the barrier to Christianity, the barrier to finding God is lack of information, lack of faith, okay? But if it is, you came in here this morning, and your life, because for the first time in your life, you're going, I'm not in control. I'm not very competent. And I don't know what to do. I want to encourage you this morning, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, you might want to lean in and go, I relinquish control to you. I acknowledge that I am not competent to run my own life. You see, friend, Easter makes a claim of all claims because if Jesus really rose from the dead, he demands a response. If Jesus really rose from the dead, he's not somebody you just call consultant, advisor, can you be my friend? If Jesus really rose from the dead, his claim is lordship and kingship. His claim is, it begins with you saying, you're not in control. I am. Christian, who's lord of your money? Who decides where you spend it? Christian, who's lord over your body? Who decides who you sleep with? Christian, who's lord over your career? What career you decide? Christian, who's Lord over your future, where you live? Christian, who is Lord over your relationship? Christian, who is Lord? Who is King? Verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. By the way, the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could come out. The stone was rolled away so that you and I could go into the tomb and investigate for ourselves who this is. Just when he entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? What a great question. Anybody else? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Or the way I would put it, why do you look for life among dead things? 
Why do you look for life among dead things? Why are you looking to find life, find hope, find significance, find fulfillment in things you know and I know where life can't be found? And I love the question of the angels when they say, why? In other words, they're saying, you don't have to. You don't have to. You think you have to. You don't have to think that that's where you find life. Have you noticed that our culture is obsessed with not thinking about death? Have you noticed that? Our culture is obsessed with avoiding death, not thinking about death. Our culture is obsessed with it. Two days ago, I walked in to my bedroom to see my wife with a mask on. And if you're going, what kind of a mask? Ask any Asian women, they'll tell you. Maybe it's not just an Asian thing. They do the skin beauty treatment. Are you familiar with that? So it's, it, they, they look freaky. But anyway, they have eyes, it's just thinking shit on. And this one was like gold. It was like, what the heck is going on? Gold. You know what it does? It makes your skin nice and soft. Like baby's bottom, she says. I tried it. It doesn't work for me. Anyway, um, we don't even want to look like we have wrinkles. What is this? What is this about the culture we live in? It's like, well, Ernest Becker, I think, had an insight. Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death, won a Pulitzer Prize in 1974. And he makes this fascinating case in the book. He says, we live in a culture that's obsessed with denying the reality of death because if indeed our life is like a candle, we live and we die, we go out, nothing matters. Nothing matters. Everything is meaningless. But the thing is, you know and I know the human soul is created in such a way we have to have meaning. We have to have some purpose. We can't live like that. We just can't live like this. So what societies do is they come up with these ways to help us deal with sense of meaninglessness, insignificance, to give us a sense of like you're not all that helpless. And one of the ways that our society comes up with the ways to help us deal with this is what he called the romantic solution, which is what? You find the sense of, ah, in somebody, in your lover, in romance. I'm not even going to talk long about this because, good Lord, is anybody seriously going to deny sitting here this morning that we live in a culture and society that has elevated romance relationships? How long has the show Bachelor and Bachelor been on? Please, somebody, like, kill that show. Write to ABC and saying, stop it. Anybody, anybody with me? Please clap. Like, I am sick. But you know what? Why do millions of people every year, knowing what's going to happen, turn into that? Why do I sit at coffee shops with people in utter despair? We're not just talking, I'm sad. We're talking, I want to kill myself. Because somebody broke up with me. Can I just say something to you? Listen, listen, listen. Why are you looking for life where life can't be found? Why are you looking for life where life can't be found? Do you really think a human being, a flawed human being, could be a godlike everything to you? Are you serious? Are you serious? There are married couples sitting in here. You don't even realize you're doing it. You are looking to that person to be godlike everything to you. And you know what it's doing? It is crushing and killing that relationship. 
Every relationship, every relationship have a sign on it, like those we see on bridges, where you go, you put more weight on it than it can carry, and it'll collapse. Your relationships are collapsing because you're putting expectations on that person to be a God like everything that they could never be for you. Friend, friend, why are you looking for life where life can't be found? Why are you looking for life among dead things? Another way our culture deals with this is what he called the creative solution, which is what? You find identity, significance, meaning by creating, achieving, doing. We live in a culture where say when we meet somebody, hey, what's your name? Peter, second question, what do you do for a living? What is that? I'll tell you what that is. My identity, significance is found in what I do, what I achieve, what I create, what I produce. How I, oh my gosh. Why are you looking for life where life can't be found? Do you really, do you really, really think that you will find life in your job and what you do? Anybody familiar with the book, Hope for the Flowers? It's a story about two caterpillars, striped and yellow. Anybody? Go home and read it today, okay? Hope for the flowers, two caterpillars. This illustration is a little gross, a little freaky, a little awesome. I'm just warning you, okay? No warning. Two caterpillars. Stripe is a caterpillar. And one day, he's walking about, and he sees a pillar, a huge pillar, with millions of caterpillars on it. I told you, it's kind of gross. Just, climb, just, just climbing and just caterpillars, just millions of them just climbing. So he decides, you know what? There's something to that. There must be. Look at all these caterpillars. Look at all of them. There must be something. So he gets on this pillar and he starts climbing. And he's pretty good, by the way. He's climbing on top of other caterpillars. He's elbowing. He's finding his way to the top of the caterpillar. And months, days, and weeks. And finally, just as he's about to get to the top of the pillar, here's a voice at the very top. And the voice says, There's nothing here. There's nothing here. But then here's the second voice. <laughs> second voice says, Shh, you idiot. They'll find out. Be quiet. First voice says, but there's nothing here. Second voice says, of course there's nothing there, you idiot. What's there is the fact of knowing that everybody wants to be where you are. Everybody wants to get to where you are. First voice says, it's, it's nonsense. First voice says, I'm looking over the world and I see thousands of pillars with millions of caterpillars just climbing and climbing and climbing, but there's nothing there. What? This is utter, utter, utter nonsense. And the second voice says, no, of course it is. But what's there is knowing that other people are more of a fool than you are. Friend, are you tired of climbing? It's really quiet in here. Talk to anybody who's gotten to the top, your profession, your career, and ask them, what's it like? Many of them, if they're honest, will say, there's nothing Why do you do the job you do? Why do you work? 
For who? Whose approval are you after? Whose affirmation are you after? Who's desperate? Yes, you're good. Yes, you're sinful. Yes, you're approved. Yes, you're worthy. Who are you after? Whose voice are you after? Who's for you? Who, what pillars are you climbing? Do you realize that there is no life there? Why are you looking for life where life can't be found? Is anybody this morning just willing to be honest with themselves? Is anybody this morning just willing to be go, I'm that caterpillar. And I'm afraid, Peter, deep in my heart, that there's a voice up there that's going to say, there's nothing here, dude. Why are you looking for life where life can't be found? Angels question, why? Great one. You don't have to. No, I, I, no, I have. You don't have to. But I have. You don't have to. You know why? Because here's the amazing news of Easter. Jesus Christ didn't come just to forgive you of your sins. Jesus Christ came to give you life. Oh, you can clap to that. Jesus Christ, listen to me, said, I am the resurrection and the life. He came not just to forgive you of your sins and earn your salvation. He came to give you true life. And friend, I got to tell you something. First commandment, have no other gods before me. That means if you stop looking for Jesus, you're not going to just stop looking, period. You're going to look elsewhere. You're going to look elsewhere. You're going to walk around and go, what other pillar, what other pillar, what other pillar? Unless your faith is grounded in the solid rock that is Jesus. Listen to me. Listen to me. Maybe today, before you walk out of here, maybe today, and I'm not asking you to do anything crazy, maybe before you walk out of here today, maybe some of you could finally be rigorously honest and go, this is empty. This is so empty. Who and what am I doing this for? Oh, church, friends. CC, you with me this morning? Is anybody else with me this morning? Okay, okay. Listen, 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 listen. One, just for those of you that are going, yeah, but Jesus, listen, whatever it is you're climbing, will it be as forgiving? Will it be as tender? Will it be as CC and remind us something this morning? Will it be as loving unconditionally? Come on, be honest. Verse 6, he's not here. The angel said, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised to life. Verse 8, and then they remember his words. Ah, yes, yes. Verse 9, so when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. What I love about the resurrection account, if you read it, is nobody sits there and goes, Jesus is risen. They go, it's awesome. Let's go home and have lunch. They go, Jesus is risen, and they can't help it. They go and they tell. 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 And here's the thing. They're not going and telling, Jesus is risen from the dead. I have peace in my soul. 
peace like a river. I've got peace. They're not doing that. They're not going, oh, Jesus is risen from the dead. I can't wait to go to heaven to be with him. They're not doing that. You know what they're doing? They're going around. This is how Christianity spread. They're saying, Jesus Christ has risen. And his kingdom, his rule, his reign of justice and love and compassion is here now. They're going around going, Jesus Christ has risen. And that means that this world is broken. A mess the world matters to God. And he has ushered a plan to fix it, to mold it, to restore it, and to put everything right. They're going around telling people, look, all the brokenness of the world. God cares so much that his son died and rose. And one day he's going to fix this whole thing. They didn't think of the resurrection as security and assurance to heaven, they thought of the resurrection as a mission into the world based on the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, therefore, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection church says that the kingdom of God, heaven has touched down under the ground and we have kingdom assignments and a job to do. I'm gonna tell you something. For those of you that grew up in church and thinking, Easter, great. It forgives me of my sins. I'm going to tell you something. Our world needs to hear about an Easter that addresses and says something about gun violence. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell, I wish you were here for the 9 o'clock service. I'm going to tell you something. Our world needs a resurrection, an Easter Sunday that addresses and says something about mass incarceration and for-profit systems. Our world needs a resurrection that sees and cares for undocumented families that are being torn apart. Our world needs an Easter resurrection that doesn't just believe in living water, but gives clean water to Flint, Michigan. Come on, somebody. Our world needs an Easter resurrection that cares about the fact that women are experiencing sexual violence, especially women of color, and we speak out boldly and say we care about that. Our world needs an Easter resurrection that doesn't just talk about salvation to heaven, but about clean air, clean land, clean water, our environment. Our world needs an Easter resurrection church that doesn't just say, well, in the great, my, my sins are forgiven. But our world needs an Easter resurrection that says, no, God has something to say about corporate, collective sins that is embedded in systems and institutions. Our world needs to hear an Easter resurrection that says, followers of Jesus Christ have kingdom assignments to make an impact in this world, on earth, on physical reality earth, today until he returns. And when he returns, he is going to put everything back again. Church, our world needs to see an Easter resurrection through you and through me. And it goes beyond Sundays and Bible studies and individual salvation, but an Easter resurrection. By the way, I love the fact that Luke wrote both Book of Luke and Book of Acts. Do you know why? Because Easter and Pentecost go together, man. Yes! He gives us the mission, and then he says, I'm going to empower you by my spirit for that mission so you don't do it on your strength but by my strength by my by my power church is this good news my prayer my prayer for you and for me is that this world that's maybe gotten bored with easter like eh, forgiveness that they would see anew wow god cares about this world 
yes, God cares about this world. Verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the disciples, why are you putting in names here? Why are you putting in names here, Luke? Why? You know what these are? These are footnotes. What are footnotes? Anybody written papers? Research papers. When you write research papers, you write footnotes. Why? Citations to go. I'm getting it from that source. I'm getting it from that source. I'm getting it from that source. So if you want to check out what I said, it's true. Go to those sources. This is oral culture. You know what Luke is doing? He's literally writing this 20, 30 years after the resurrection. He's going, uh, if you want to see and verify what I say is true, Go ask Mary. She lives in the city of Magdala, just a few miles from here. These are living eyewitnesses who are still around. (laughs) There's no way Christianity would have survived, you guys. Imagine somebody making a claim of something that happened in Chicago in 1997. It's easy to verify. Did it happen? I was alive in 1997. Okay? Ask me. That's exactly what Luke is doing. And then my favorite part of this, actually, verse 11 is not my favorite part. (laughs) It's verse 12. (laughs) I got some, amen, Pastor Peter, preach it in verse 11 from the women, by the way. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Listen, listen. Yes, this is a male chauvinistic culture. So male chauvinistic, by the way, that women's testimonies were not even allowed in court. If you're a woman who saw murder happen, you couldn't stand in court and testify because people would be like, you're a woman. We don't care. Why would Luke, if he's trying to propagate the Christian faith, put something on there that the rest of the culture is like, what? Unless it happened. (laughs) Unless it happened. Verse 12, Peter, this is my favorite part. However, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. I love the fact. Why, why, why doesn't Peter go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to just take a gingerly. Why does he go, what? He, huh? And runs to the tomb. Do you know why? I could so relate. Not because his name is Peter. I could so relate. Because can, any, can anybody, listen, can anybody in here, can anybody in here ever relate? to making a mistake and, and having blown it once in a while? Come on, come on. Can anybody, can anybody in here relate to messing up? Can anybody in here relate to letting somebody down? Can anybody in this room, besides like two of us, relate to blowing it once in a while and regretting it? Anybody? Anybody? Peter is dealing with the biggest regret of his life. Three times he says, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And he's carrying that shame and guilt. And he's going, what if it's true? He's alive. What if it's true? See, there's not a single one of us in this room that lives as we should. Is anybody sitting and go, Peter, I live perfectly as I should? Anybody? Come on. You don't even live up to your own standards. Give me a break. Come on. If you're sitting there going, I don't care about God, fine, that's fine. But you know what? If I put a little tape recorder, okay, and it was somehow able to read your thoughts, every day you're going around, that person should, he should, she should. Uh. How often do you live up to that? Yeah. 
We failed even our own expectations. I failed as a parent. I failed as a husband. I failed as a pastor. I failed as a friend. I failed. I failed. I failed. And just like Peter, what I needed more than any other thing on that day was redemption and forgiveness. Do you know why Jesus had to rise from the dead? Some of you are like, I don't. Do you know why he had? You know, it was just like magic trick. Like, watch this. Do you know why he had to not just die for you, but rise for you? Paul says this in Romans 4. He was raised over, he was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. That word justification is a legal terminology in the court of law that literally meant not guilty. Do you know what the resurrection is? Listen. Resurrection says that if there is no judge at the end of this deal that's going to judge impartially and put everything right, there's no hope for the world. There's no hope. But if there is a judge, what hope is there for you and me? See, at the end of this deal, there will come an accounting of everything that we've done and not done, including living up to our own standards that we judge other people for. The resurrection says that day will come, but Jesus Christ paid it all. (sighs) That day of reckoning will come, every single one of us. But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in his resurrection stamps across history, paid in full for all the people in the world and for your life to see. There is no more condemnation. There is no more judgment. Church, is this good news? Yeah, you could clap to that too. This is amazing news. This is amazing news. This is amazing. So that, that means that any of us, how many of us are living with regret? It's like a daily struggle for me. That little devil. I'd be walking around sometimes, and I'm brought to remind her something I did in 1992. Anybody else? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like 1990, some of you weren't even alive. Like 1992, something will pop up, and you know what? I don't listen. I don't just go, he paid for it. I am his. There is no condemnation. I get reminded, and I immediately go, ah, And I have to remind myself, Jesus not only died for my sins, but he rose from the dead and he paid in full. You know what that does for me? It also gives me assurance to do this. Many of you are sitting here this morning and because you're wrong with guilt, because you're insecure in your standing relationship with God, when you mess up, you don't run to God, you run away from God. And the Bible says the resurrection means you could run to him. You don't have to run away from him anymore. You could run to him, child. You could run to him. And when you mess up, we don't live in denial. We don't live in despair. We confess to God. God, I messed up. Help me. We confess to other people. We make amends, as my friends in 12 Steps, we make amends with other people. And then once we do that, we let it go. And say, I'm not going to let failure And I'm not going to let my sins define me anymore. I am defined by his work on the cross. My identity is secure. And I know that what I can do is pick myself up, find Jesus-loving people, and do life with them. And I can't ever give up knowing that Jesus will never give up on me. I hear the voice of the Father saying, that thing you're struggling with, we're going to work on that, Peter. In the meantime, I'm not letting you go. Keep walking, keep pressing, keep pursuing. I am with you and I am for you. Resurrection. 
Maybe you're someone sitting here this morning and you're going, is there even hope for me? Peter, (laughs) Peter becomes the leader of the church. Jesus builds the church on this fool. Ah. Is the gospel good news? Absolutely. Because that means God can do anything with anybody here. If you're sitting here this morning, listen, and you're going, all right, I, 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 but if you're sitting here this morning going, I know I'm in control, I know I'm competent. That was an interesting talk for 35 minutes, but thank you. I'm going to go enjoy my lunch now. I bless you, I love you, pray for you. And hope to see you again. But if there's somebody in here who's saying, I'm tired of living under this delusion that I'm in control. I am tired of living under this illusion that I'm competent to run my own life. I am tired, Peter. I've reached my end. Here's my invitation for you. Would you be willing? I'm not going to ask you to do anything crazy, so don't worry. Would you be willing at the end of this deal in a few minutes to actually confess that to God? To say, God, I am not in control. God, I am not competent to run my own life. I am at my wit's end. Because I can tell you, you, before even the words come out and finish your mouth, the, the God that I know has his big old arms wrapped around you and saying, I want you to come home. Now, let me finish with this. If you're sitting there going, how do I know? You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what my life is like. You have no idea what I did last night. Respectfully, I could care less what you did last night because I know what Jesus has done. I know what Jesus has done. Do you know what Jesus has done? Let me show you. When they wrote the New Testament, they didn't have chapter and verses. They just had these sentences. And so right before Luke 24, the passage that we read today, do you know the two verses before that? Do you know what happens? Do you know what happens? Check this out. Luke chapter 23, it's going to be up on the screen. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Okay? Verse 56, then they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Front row, I'm just going to talk to you and they can just kind of listen in. Do you know what's happening here? So you're the women. Friday, they see the crucifixion. And on Saturday, they want to do something for Jesus. They want to bring spice and bombs. But they can't. They can't do anything. They can't, literally can't do anything. They're good Jews. It's Sabbath. You are not allowed to do anything. But while they are just resting and not allowed to do anything on that Saturday, what is Jesus Christ doing? He is in hell defeating Satan, sin, and death for them. While they are unable to, what a picture of Christianity. While they're sitting there going, can't do anything. It's the Sabbath. Can't do anything. What is Jesus doing? He is in hell fighting and defeating Satan, sin, and death, earning our salvation so that on Sunday he could rise from the dead. Is that good news? 
What a picture of the gospel. While they're resting, he is defeating Satan, sin, and death so that we could ultimately find our rest in him. Come to me, all you who are weary from looking for life and dead things. Come to me, all you who are weary, who are tired of trying to look for life where life can't be found. And Jesus says, I will give you what? I will give you You don't have to do anything. That's the gospel because he did all the work. Some of you are just so tired right now because you're going, God, I've been running 120 miles per hour because if I don't do the work, if I don't do it, God is going, if you think it's about you, it's never been about you. It's never been about you or me. He lives the life we should have lived. And he dies to death. We should have died. And so when we believe that he died and he rose again, a great exchange takes place. Our sins on Jesus and his righteousness on us. And so now he says, Grant, when I see you, I see my son Jesus. I see you as beloved, righteous, holy. Rest. I am his beloved. Rest in that. I don't have to do it. Rest in that. Earning, striving. Rest in that. I'm looking for life among dead things. Find your rest in him. Pray with me. Here's what I would like to ask. And again, I'm not going to, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hands or anything like that, so don't worry. What I am going to ask, though, is if there's anybody, again, anybody here today who is willing to be rigorously honest with yourself and saying, I am not in control I am not confident, but I don't know what else to do, Peter. I don't know who to trust. I don't, listen, Jesus Christ bore, bore our sins, bore our effort, bore our works. He bore all that so that in him you would find life, freedom, joy. What I want to ask you to do if you're willing and ready to do that, isn't the quietness of this room in your heart, just acknowledge and confess to God and saying, God, I am not in control. I am not competent to run my own life. And I need you, someone way more competent, way more wise and loving than I will ever be, to do for me what I can't do. A simple and yet life-transforming prayer. Can I give you a couple minutes if your heart is there today just say that just confess that just say that and confess that right where you are he hears you he hears you
He already knows it'll be freeing and healing for you and not surprising to God. I am not in control. I am not confident to run my own life. And secondly, if you've never, ever confessed your belief that he died and rose for you. If you've never done that, I want to give you this time. If you feel led to do that, if you in your heart of hearts are going, Peter, I believe it. I believe that he died and rose for me. I believe that he died and rose for me. Then confess that to God. Acknowledge to God and say, God, I believe that you died and you rose for me. I believe that you died and you rose for me. I can't make sense of it. I don't even know how, but I believe you died and you rose for me. Confess that, acknowledge it to God. He hears you. He hears you. He hears you. If you're somebody who said that prayer, to somebody, your friend that brought you. If you're in a small group, your small group leader, small group members, you can come and talk to me. Talk to somebody and tell them, you need to do this, you need to tell them what you prayed, you need to tell them what you acknowledge, tell them what you confessed. If there's one place where that will be celebrated and supported, it's here. We want to come alongside you. So, so let somebody know. Let somebody know. As the worship team leads us in this final song, I want to I just invite and encourage you. When the words begin resonating, would you stand up on your feet and sing this out loud as your declaration and confession? Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs>